We say uh, all will be right with the world one day. What do you think of? Uh, do you think of peace and joy? Uh, do you think of, of perfection? Uh, do you think of, of an end to pain and sorrow and suffering that we see in this world? That things will be right? That things will, things will be righteous? Or maybe you think about kind of the caricature of heaven. You think about relaxing harp music or golden streets and flowing gentle rivers. What about when you hear the word judgment? Does that bring a different mental image to mind? When you think about righteousness on God's earth, does judgment come to mind? Does judgment enter the thought process? According to God's word, the Lord will bring righteousness to the earth. But as we'll see in the text today, he brings this righteousness through judgment. Uh, we'll be taking a look today at an Old Testament prophet, uh, Amos. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Amos chapter 1. Uh, Amos is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament. It's, it's right after Daniel and Hosea and Joel. It's right before Obadiah and Jonah. If you skim through there, you'll find it right in the middle of those. Uh, today we're going to take a look at Amos chapter 1 verse 1 through Amos 2 verse 3. Uh, and so go ahead and find your way there. Follow along as I read through these verses. And as you do that, I want you to consider how the righteousness of God, how the righteousness of God is upheld through this text. How is the righteousness of God upheld through this judgment? All right, Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing of sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and from the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ascalon, I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant 
of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and I will kill all the princes with him, says the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. The main point of the text today, and therefore the main idea of the sermon is this. The Lord will judge the world in righteousness and justice. The Lord will judge the world in righteousness and justice. We see in this passage, judgment is pronounced on six specific nations for the sins that they've committed. And as we look at the verdict here, we get a glimpse of the character of of God, specifically how, how the Almighty Lord of the universe carries out his judgment against sin. That's why I want us to take away from the passage today. And, and as we work through this, we'll see eight aspects of God's judgment that come directly from this text. Eight points. They'll be quick, so uh, bear with me. Eight points this morning, eight aspects of God's judgment that come directly from this text. I'm not going to list all of them right now, but as we work through them, uh, we'll see them. Eight characteristics of God's judgment. So number one, God's judgment is proclaimed. God's judgment is proclaimed. So if you look back at verse one in chapter one of this text, we are told that the word of God is being proclaimed through a man named Amos. And we get quite a lot of information about the messenger and and the whole context, in fact, of this book. Uh, We're told here that Amos is from Tekoa. Well, Tekoa was a city about 10 miles south of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is important. It becomes important later on because Amos from Judah is not sent to prophesy to Judah, but he's sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. He's not sent to prophesy to his own people, but he's sent north, and he's to prophesy to the northern kingdom in Israel. 
So you can imagine how much the people of Israel appreciated Amos, this dude from their little brother to the south coming up and saying, God is going to judge you. God is going to judge you for your wickedness. Uh, He's already setting himself up for difficulty there, right? This people who don't like him is who he sent to proclaim this message to. And we're not, we're not just given his hometown, but we're also given his occupation. He's a shepherd. We learn actually later on in, in Amos chapter 7 that he also tended sycamore trees. He, he harvested figs from sycamore trees. Amos doesn't come from the well-educated class. He doesn't come from the teaching class. He doesn't come as this professor that people are looking to for answers. But Amos is coming from a modest life, a a workman's background. He's a shepherd. He's a farmer. God has chosen still in this situation to use him. He's put him in this place to use him to deliver a message from the Lord to the nations. This this is is often the way that God chooses to work. This is often how God decides he will deliver his message. And we see, if we look through the Bible, we see examples of this. We see Samuel. Samuel is not born of nobility as if he were something special. He's, he's born in a low position. And, the, and then he is dedicated to the service of the Lord. And he's used in a mighty way by God. God decided to do this. David, King David, right, the greatest king of Israel, He was a shepherd, like Amos. He wasn't even as handsome and tall as his brothers. He was coming from a low position, but God chose him and used him, not because of his stature and his skill, but because that's what God decided to do. Even John the Baptist, right, the greatest of all the prophets. John the Baptist was a bit of an outcast, and yet God chose to use him and proclaim his message through John the Baptist to pave the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus himself, right, our Lord and Savior, was born in a lowly position, the son of a carpenter. He's born in a manger, and and God chooses to save the world through this man born in a lowly position, the one who has given us the greatest wisdom that we could ever, ever hope to have. God has, God has chosen to do it in this manner. God uses those who are humble. God uses those who are humble and willing to serve him. Well, friends, this should be an encouragement to us. We don't need a lofty position or a well-paying job or an extensive education or a defined ministry role to be used by the Lord. Uh, in fact, he, does, he, he doesn't use the proud. Right? God, God says specifically, I, he won't use the proud. He uses the meek. So let us, let us approach him with this same sort of atti- attitude, the same, the same sort of attitude that we see from Amos, a willingness to serve, even in hard places, even in places where maybe you are not welcome or you are rejected, but a willingness to serve and a humility before the Lord. All right, so that's, that's the messenger, but we, we, and we learn a little bit about him here, but we learn about the setting in which it takes place too. All right, so, so here at the beginning of chapter one, it says he lives in a time of the divided kingdom. It says, 
It says that Uzziah is king of Judah, and Jeroboam II is king in Israel. So this is really helpful information. It helps us pinpoint the timing of this chapter. Uh, these two kings, the king of Judah and the king of Israel, they, they overlapped in 792 to 753 B.C. Uh, if you come to the adult Sunday school class we're going through here, and I encourage you to do that, we're going through the books of First and Second Kings right now, and we're going to learn about both of these guys, about both of these rulers. Uh, if you want a preview on the events that happened there, you can go ahead and read Second Kings 14.23 through 15.7. If you want to jot that down, it's Second Kings 14.23 through 15.7. These, the, uh, the events that happened during this time are outlined there. These guys reigned over the divided kingdom. Um, and we know from then these biblical texts uh, what some of the particular issues were in the country, and it kind of helped shape the context for Amos. Uh, during this time, we know that, that both Judah and Israel displayed great military might. Uh, they were not under the yoke of another uh, country. They were not um, being persecuted from uh, abroad, but they found great security at this time in their national protection. Uh, in addition to that, they experienced huge financial gains at this time. And we see in the rest of the book of Amos that they, they amassed great wealth, in fact, so much so that they have summer homes and winter homes, which would be nice, right? Lots of money flowing through here. Uh, furthermore, we know at this time that the country was uh, a buzz in religious activity. It was a buzz in religious activity, but it was not the type of true worship that God desires. It was not regulated by God's word, as it always should be. It was synchronistic with the pagan religions around them, uh, and it was not done in faith according to the word of God, according to God's prescription. Uh, they, they worshipped these things called high places. They were, uh, for lack of a better word, idolatrous uh, idolatrous places, idolatrous centers, uh, and they continued in this compromised practice, kind of resulting in this perverted worship, this idolatry. The security that they found in their army and in their money, as well as, as the comfort they took from these idolatrous, idolatrous practices, these are, these are important contextual uh, clues that tie us into what's happening here in Amos and why he's bringing this message. Here we see that the Lord is at work then. God's at work. He's proclaiming the message of pending judgment on these nations for the sins that they've committed. Amos is the messenger proclaiming the word from the Lord. And I, I want to pause right now and, and, and point us to something that's very important. We should recognize that God is gracious. We read a lot of words of judgment this morning. God is gracious in proclaiming anything to us at all. Even judgment. Have you considered that before? Is God, is the Almighty God required to communicate with people? Is there something that binds him to this? Is he required to tell us anything at all? Like, no. No. God is 
not required to do that. He's not required to tell us anything. And yet in his kindness, in God's graciousness, he gives us his word. Now here we see judgment proclaimed on the nations. And, and in the New Testament, we see judgment proclaimed against sin clearly and repeatedly. But this message is gracious. This message is kind. Certainly, there's more to God's communication to us than condemnation. Praise the Lord. But this is where we need to start. This is a kindness from God. His judgment is proclaimed, and it's done in his word. Well, that's the first, that's the first characteristic of God's judgment that we see in Amos, that his judgment is proclaimed. It's delivered through a messenger. The second characteristic of God's judgment that we see here in Amos chapter 1 is the origin of the judgment. And it might sound simple, but this is critical. God's, the, the judgment is from the Lord. Take a look down again at verse 2. What does, this, what does this verse say? The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars. It's vivid imagery here. He's, it's, it's, it's talking about God as if he's roaring like a raging lion. Now, this message is coming to them loudly and there's a certain righteous wrath behind it. This is, this is not a weak God. This is not a buddy coming alongside of them and giving them advice. This is not a caricature of God. This is not coffee shop Jesus just saddling up and giving you some kind words. This is the Lord, the God Almighty, roaring against sin and wickedness that he is seeing. This is the Almighty King declaring judgment. The Lord roars from Zion. And then we look down at each subsequent paragraph and and we see these six nations. So look at verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and chapter 2, verse 1. They all start the same way. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. This is crucial. Amos is the messenger, but the message is not Amos's message. It's the Lord's. It's God's words. It originates with the Lord. And it carries the weight of the words of the Lord and the authority of the words of the Lord. Even more than that, you'll notice in your Bible, look at how it even spells the word Lord in those verses. You'll see Lord in all capital letters. That's to indicate to us that that's actually the word for God's name. Yahweh in the text. This is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, were to understand that and recognize all the implications that come with that. The Lord, Yahweh, covenants with his people. And within this covenant, from the Lord, there are promises by God and there are promises by his people to live a certain way. So the sins that are described in this text break that covenant in so many different ways. And the penalty for breaking the covenant has been laid out. It is righteous judgment. Well, friends, when we approach God's word, 
when we approach any of his words, not just these, but any words of scripture, we should approach them knowing that the authority and the weight of those words are from the Lord God Almighty, from Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So we receive these words. We receive these words not from men, but from the Lord. When you open your Bible, we don't approach the word arrogantly, or flippantly, but with a certain sense of awe and trembling. These are the words of the Lord. The message is His. Well, judgment is proclaimed, judgment is from the Lord, and third, we see in this text that judgment comes after God's gracious restraint. The judgment we see here is judgment that is after, after God's gracious restraint. If we look at each one of these judgment passages, we see the same sort of pattern develop, right? So verse 3 says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will, dot, dot, dot. And then judgment. Verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will, dot, dot, dot. And judgment, right? This cadence is repeated to all the nations. For three transgressions and for four, I will. Why, why does he state it like this? Why, why, is he, why is he putting it this way? Some commentators have suggested that these numbers are significant, that three plus four equals seven, and seven is the biblical number of completeness. Uh, in this case, the, the, the sin that these nations commit would have reached their fullness. Maybe, maybe that's it. Um, I, I hesitate to say that definitively. I think rather we just look at it in the context of the type of, uh, of literature it is. This is this is done according to Hebrew poetry. It's a, it's a literary device that's used. So if you consider the words in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, it says something similar. Uh, there we see it say, There are six things that the Lord hates, and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All right, so, so the six things, seven things distinction here indicates that it's not, it's not a, a comprehensive list of everything that God hates. Those seven things aren't all the sins that God hates, but it is the culmination or, or, or a, a list of many things that, that the Lord hates. I think, I think that sort of thing, that language, is what we're seeing here in Amos, the three and the four. He doesn't list all three sins or four sins in, in each case that they're doing wrong, but he's saying there is a lot that you have done wrong. You have sinned against God. And it's come to a culmination. You've done messed up. And it's time to go to judgment. Notice, though, that God's, that God's judgment is coming after several years of sinning coming after many years of sinning. God has been waiting patiently and they continue to break his law. God waits patiently. They continue to sin against him. That God is waiting patiently and they continue to mistreat people. God is waiting patiently and yet they continue to rebel against him.
he could have been quick to judge. God could have been quick to judge them as soon as they messed out of line, but he's slow to anger. And he's gracious in his response. This is merciful. Now, friends, consider our lives for a moment. Consider your life for a moment. Consider what we have done this week, maybe even this morning. If you receive justice, if God gave you a just ruling for the things that you have done this week, for the actions you've committed, if you received it immediately, how would you have fared? I don't know how I would have fared. Right? It's, it's not good. It's not good. God, the holy, perfect, good, and just judge of the world, has every right to enact his justice immediately, holding us accountable to the sins that we've committed Nothing prevents his swift justice from occurring immediately other than his gracious restraint. We see this clarified for us in 2 Peter. The apostle there says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is waiting patiently as these nations commit wicked acts, but they continue to not turn to the Lord in repentance. God waits patiently today in the same way, in the same manner, as people commit wicked acts, as we commit sin against our creator God, our loving God. He desires as he waits patiently for us to turn to him in repentance. God's judgment comes after gracious restraint. The fourth aspect we see of God's judgment in this passage is that judgment is certain. A judgment is certain. God will really, truly execute judgment. It's certain. It's undeniable. It's unavoidable. It's a fact. A look again at each of the opening sentences of the judgment passages. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Judgment from the Lord will happen. It will. These nations that surround Israel here have committed these horrible atrocities that we'll discuss in a moment. And God promises justice. He promises judgment. He promises that his judgment will rain down upon them. He will not revoke the punishment. He simply cannot let sin go unpunished, but his righteous judgment against sin will certainly be executed. Well, let's dwell on that for a moment. Does this, does this ever enter your mind? God's judgment is certain. So think about when injustice happens to you. Do we ever pause to remind ourselves that God's judgment against sin, against justice, against mistreatment is certain? When you are perhaps wrongly passed over for a promotion at work that you think you've earned, or, or maybe when you've been cheated out of something, or when something's been stolen from you. What about when gossip is going around about you, or, or someone is treating you poorly. Do you consider that God's judgment is certain? 
I'm not saying we lay down and do nothing, but at the end of the day, it's not us. It's not up to us to avenge the wrongs that are done to us. We're not Batman, right? We're not, certainly not the Lord. God's judgment is certain. There is a certain rest that should be uh, in our minds when we think about that. Sin does not go unpunished. On the other side of the coin, do you ever consider God's judgment is certain against you? God's judgment is certain against you. God will not simply overlook your sin. That never, never happens. Never. God is a good and right judge. And just as a good judge on earth does not just let crime go unpunished, God, the only true good and right judge, the one who knows all things, will not let sin go unpunished. And it says here, he will not revoke his punishment. When you sinfully manipulate a situation at work so you can step on others and get ahead, or when you cheat someone from something, or when you steal, when you gossip about others, when you treat people poorly, God knows that God's judgment is certain. God will not revoke the punishment. This is a critical aspect of God's judgment. And we would do well to listen and learn from this passage. When we come to an Old Testament text like this, written about a certain people in a certain time and place, it is still written about the same God that we serve today. And his character does not change. God will judge. And he will judge the living and the dead. This is certain. I think maybe by way of application, we would do well to consider this fact, maybe this afternoon. When you go to the Lord in prayer, approach him, recognizing him that he does know all things. He already knows this. He knows what you have done. He is righteous and he is just. And ultimately, he will judge. Now, this can and should go a long way toward pushing us to a proper fear of the Lord. His judgment is certain. The well, judgment of God is certain, but we see in this text, the judgment of God is universal. So number five, the judgment is universal. Notice all the different peoples, people groups listed in these verses today. You've got Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, and Moab. There's six. And then in the next chapter, he gets to Judah and then Israel. It's everyone. All right? When he's writing this book, it's to, it's to everyone. It's universal. It's covering all of these people groups. Now, in this passage, I think these nations are selected in this order for a reason. So the original readers of this passage would have picked up on this, and, and, and it's a little uh, more hazy for us today. If you were to plot these nations on a map, you would notice a distinct pattern here, sort of like concentric circles zeroing in on Israel uh, at the end. So Damascus, a city in Aram, is uh, northeast and distant from Israel. Gaza, part of Philistia, is located southwest of Israel. Tyre, the next one, is, is northwest, and Edom is in the southeast. So he's kind of like, 
hitting all the directions around them. And then he moves to the Ammonites. They're a, a bit closer and to the east of Israel. And then, and then Moab, close and, and to the southeast. And then in the next chapter, he moves to Judah, right? Little brother to the south. And then finally, he gets to the epicenter, Israel. He's zeroing in. He's starting broad, and he's working his way into the, to the audience that he's speaking to. And, and I think this is a clever approach. Amos is gaining agreement from his audience here. He's, he's detailing the sin that they know well of these other countries, and, and then he's, he's pronouncing the judgment that's going to happen to this country and this country and all the countries that are around him. And, and it's the people that Israel doesn't like anyway. Right? So he's saying to them, God's judgment is coming, and they're like, yeah, yes it is. That's right. He's going to get them. He's going to get them. He's going to get these people we don't like. He's going to get these people we don't like. I, I can't help but being reminded of watching in delight as my cousins got in trouble as kids. Like, we saw them do naughty things, and their parents found out, and they're getting in trouble, and we're like, yes, like, get them. It's not a great attitude, but it's an honest reaction of the way we were. Um, but as I said in the next chapter, you'll see Amos turns this around in a twist, exposing Israel, exposing his people for the sins that they have committed. And we see they are subject to the very same judgment that these nations are subjected to. Amos starts with the nations that are far off, and he brings it a bit closer, and he brings it a bit closer. And we see no one is outside of God's jurisdiction. No one is outside of the hand of the Lord. He's the Lord. He will judge impartially, and he will judge fairly. His judgment is universal, and all mankind is subjected to it. Now, friends, this should cause us to look inwardly, confessing and repenting of our own sin, recognizing that we are guilty. We are not outside the Lord's jurisdiction. We should not think of ourselves above others. We are often guilty of the same sort of sin as our unbelieving neighbor. Let this cause us to bow the knee to God in humility rather than raise our fist in rancor to the world around us. In addition, the fact that God's judgment is universal can and should fuel our evangelism. All have sinned. All have sinned. No one is exempt from this. This is a desperate situation. And left to ourselves, we are under this heavy burden. It's as Christians, we have a message of deliverance from this judgment. We have a message of deliverance from damnation. God's judgment is universal. So let our evangelistic zeal be applied universally. This should be an encouragement for us to spread good news to countries far off and to people across the street. God's judgment is universal. And we see in this uh, num point number six here, we see another feature of his judgment is that it is just. Number six, God's judgment is just. 
I think one of the most difficult things about these 18 verses is not in understanding what they mean. I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, The difficulty for me in these 18 verses is reading and imagining the reality of the sin and the various wicked acts that have actually been committed. Amos is blunt here. And he lays out the sins of the nations. And all of these sins have one thing in common. They all deal with how they mistreat other people. It's the common thread. How these nations have treated other people. They've treated humans who have inherent worth and value. Humans, people who are made in the image of God. As worthless. This sin is atrocious. And and the judgment here is just. Let's look at each of these as we kind of walk through it. Look at verse 3. It says in verse 3 that Damascus threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. This is, this is actually a pretty bleak description of the brutality of the Aramaeans from Damascus treating their enemies like they have no worth. Threshing was a process of removing grain from the stock during harvest time and they would have these big, big iron sledges. And there was uh, heavy uh, sledges with knives uh, of iron uh, underneath, these prongs that would cut into the stock and cut away the grain. It appears here that Aramaeans have used these tools as a means of torture, uh, brutalizing Gilead in their conquest. They treated these fellow humans, they trampled these fellow humans like they have no worth, torturing them. Verse 6, look at what it says in verse 6. The Philistines from Gaza use people for profit, capturing their enemies and selling them into slavery. Verse 9, Tyre takes this one step further. They're selling people into slavery, but they've done this to a group of people that they've deceived. They broke a covenant of brotherhood, it says, lying to them and selling them into captivity. Look at verse 11. Edom says they will be punished for their uncontrolled anger and spite. They pursued their brother with the sword and cast off all pity. They let their anger go perpetually. Verse 13, the Ammonites had no regard for human life or dignity, ripping open the wombs of pregnant women and destroying innocent life. And it was done to greedily enlarge their border, to conquer people. In Moab, chapter 2, it says they burned alive the bones of the king of Edom. They literally burned the bones of the king using the remnants as ingredients for their plaster they would use to, to, uh, to whitewash their walls. They were, they were, in effect, saying that Edom was as worthless as the lime of the ground. They had contempt for this people, and they made this clear, and they made this public. Now, we haven't gotten to the sins of Judah and Israel yet, but you can see that in the surrounding nations, people were brutally mistreated. As we think through that, as we read through that, it's clear, right? These sins must be punished. These sins deserve judgment. These sins deserve judgment that is just and righteous and severe. 
Uh, torture, murder, human trafficking, abortion, breaking of covenants and exploitation. These are all horrible atrocities against people. But before we get too high and mighty on our horse, we should consider the heart attitude behind each of these actions. Have you considered the roots of the sin of human trafficking? that we see described here, the, the roots of that sin, I think it's at least twofold. You have the sin of dehumanizing another person and the sin of taking advantage of others for selfish gain. So you and I might not be selling others into slavery, but how often are we tempted to think of others as lowly, as less than? We might not verbalize it. We might be good at hiding it. But how often are we tempted to do that? How often do we look down on others for, for various reasons? Race or nationality or social status or age or sex, just to name a few. On the inside, we can subtly commit the same sin that stands at the root of these atrocities we see in these outward actions. Maybe even more subtle is our ability to take advantage of others for selfish gain. We see a situation where we can uh, wrongly but selfishly gain when we can manipulate a situation to profit ourselves. How often do we take advantage of that? How often are we tempted to that? Uh, taking advantage of, of others, of others who are not as well off as you or, or, or in a kind of a helpless situation, it's never okay. It doesn't go unnoticed by the Lord. Many of the other sins we see here, harboring bitterness and anger against someone, treating someone as if they have no worth, not demonstrating mercy. These sins can blossom in a various number of ways in our lives. The, the judgment here rendered by the Lord against these nations is just. He has set his holy and perfect and righteous standard. And in many ways, we do not measure up. We make the mistake of thinking that just because we've not killed and murdered or enslaved others, that we don't have judgment pending from the Lord, that God's judgment is somehow for them out there and not for me in here. God's judgment is against sin. It's against all sin, and it's just. It's right. Friends, this should drive us to our knees in repentance. Judgment is just. Number seven, seventh thing we see in this passage about God's judgment is his judgment is severe and all-consuming. So as we read through each of these judgments I'm pronounced on all the nations, uh, they all end the same way, more or less. So look at verse four. What, what does verse four say? So there I will set a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, I drop down to verse 7. I will send a fire, and I will devour. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 2. I will send a fire, and I will devour. Well, have you ever sat around a, a campfire? Um, you've probably done this in the past. I think this is a good time of year in Michigan to do this. But sit around a campfire, and we do that kind of in delight. Uh, I know I've done this. You build up a hot, raging fire. Uh, you add uh, 
um, you know, chopped up logs, and you sit there and you watch it burn. And somehow, it's entertaining, right? Somehow, it's entertaining. It's, it, the fire will keep going and going and going, and you watch it go until it consumes this once massive log. Now it's nothing. It's a, it's a pile of ashes. It's all consuming. This hot raging fire consumes the fuel entirely that's in there. The Lord says that he will send a fire in judgment to devour these nations. Now here he's not saying he would literally burn them to the ground, although although in some cases that's exactly what happened. But he's saying his fire, his wrath, his judgment against their sin has grown hot and it will utterly destroy them. It will utterly consume them. There will be a pile of ashes left when he is done. His judgment is severe. His judgment is all-consuming. I think when we read passages like this, when we come to the Old Testament, we come to the New Testament, we come to God's Word, we read passages like this, we need to recognize the seriousness of sin and the great wrath that this kindles against a perfect holy God. I think often we're tempted to think, well, my sin wasn't that bad. I'm just a little bit bitter against my brother. I can cheat a little bit on my taxes. Everybody does this. I can slough off a little bit at work. God won't really care too much. This is like maybe just questionable material, not X-rated material on the internet. After all, like, who is this really hurting? I think we can justify ourselves in our minds. The church, this sort of playing around with sin, this treating it as if it wasn't a big deal, is dangerous. The judgment of the Lord is severe. The judgment of the Lord is all-consuming. He has promised. He's promised that he will judge the wicked in a real place called hell. Just as he promised and executed judgment to the nations here, he will surely bring this about. His judgment is severe. His judgment is all-consuming. Finally, number eight from this text, we see God's judgment is imminent. His judgment is imminent. Take a look down through the passage. What kind of timeline does God put on this pending judgment? What sort of timing does he get? Does he spell it out for them, like two years from now, two months from now, two days from now? He doesn't doesn't say any of that. There's not specific timing given. There is a promise that it will come, and that's it. There is a promise that he will judge, and that's it. We don't know when God will choose to bring this about. Imagine the listeners in Amos' day. Certainly they were probably listening intently at the first chapter as he lists off the judgment against their enemies. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, they're all going to be leveled. They're all going to be destroyed. They're all going to be burned to a crisp. That is great. When will this be? Edom, Amnon, Moab, 
Yeah, we're looking forward to that. When is this going to happen? I'm sure the tune changed quite a bit in chapter 2 when he moves to Judah and then finally Israel. But even then, there's no timetable given by God. God's judgment is imminent. It can come at any time. A Christian, this is, this is true today. Our God is exactly the same today as he was a thousand years ago. We're not given a timeline on when this judgment will occur. We don't know. We're not even promised tomorrow. What we are promised is this. God, the almighty God, will execute justice. It will happen. And when it does, all who have sinned will be held accountable for their actions. This is the judgment of God we see laid out in Amos chapter 1. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Amos comes, he pronounces judgment from God against these six nations. The judgment comes after God has shown gracious restraint. The judgment is, judgment is certain, it's universal, it's just, it's severe, it's all-consuming, and it can happen at any time. What do we do with this? This is the nature of God's judgment. The Lord will judge the world in righteousness and justice. We look around our world today, we look at our own very lives, and we see the exact same thing. Under God's law, we stand condemned. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I have sinned. You have sinned. We all stand before God, much like these wicked nations. God's judgment against you is certain. There's no getting around that. That's, that's the bad news. Much like the book of Amos as a, whole, as a whole, the scripture holds out the very bad news, the bleak news in front of us. But praise God, it does not end there. Friends, if you have a chance over the next few weeks, I encourage you, read through the book of Amos. There are eight and a half chapters of judgment. There's eight and a half chapters of really difficult words. But you will come to the end of the book, the last six verses, and you will find sweet gospel relief. There is hope offered to those who turn in repentance and turn back to the Lord. Just as Amos holds out hope in chapter 9, just as he holds out this gospel hope to a people stand condemned, Jesus, the good and righteous judge of the world, holds out hope to you and I. Jesus Christ, God himself, took on human flesh and stood in our place, taking these judgments, taking the punishment that you and I deserve. Judgments that we read about in Amos are a shadow pointing forward to the eternal judgment from God, the very judgment that Jesus took on himself. And not only that, look back over the sins of these nations. Every sin listed here we see committed against Jesus in one shape or form or another. Jesus was treated as if he had no worth. Jesus' body was brutalized by sinful men. Jesus was degraded and derided. Jesus was lied to by his own people and sold for profit, netting 30 pieces of silver. 
the wrath and anger of sinful men burned hot against Jesus and they lashed out at him. Violence was committed against Jesus when he was at his most vulnerable. And when he was hung on a bleeding cross, he was treated with disregard and contempt and his possessions were sold and divided up. Jesus bore the brunt of all of these types of sins that we see in Amos. And yet, it was for these very sins that Jesus died. The judgment of God was poured out on Jesus as if he were the one committing the crimes. The judgment was proclaimed by Christ himself and it was executed by God. It was certain. It was not revoked. God crushed the Son so that the world might live. The judgment against sin was just, but it was applied to Jesus, our surrogate, in our stead. God's judgment against Jesus was all-consuming and severe. God's wrath was completely satisfied by Jesus on the cross. The judgment was applied to Jesus on behalf of all who would turn repentance from their sin and place their faith in Christ. God has chosen to freely give this to us. Now friends, when we come to a passage like this, when we come to a hard passage of judgment, a prophet declaring God's righteous judgment against sin, let it drive us to our good God in repentance and faith, trusting in Jesus, our only hope. God is gracious, and for that we turn to him with thankful and joyful hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you now on our knees in prayer. We recognize that you are the holy, just, and good Lord of the world, and we do not measure up to your standard. You have promised judgment for sin, and yet you have shown us favor and mercy by sending your Son. God, help us to see the severity of our own sin, the judgment due to us, and the grace that you have given to us. We praise you forevermore. Amen.